We have been looking at Luke's account of the gospel, his narrative of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And the sermon series we have been moving through, we're already in the second part of chapter 4, is certain truth in uncertain times. If you would look back to Luke chapter 1 and look at verses 3 and 4, you'll see that theme come out of the beginning, the preface of Luke's gospel. He says that he has endeavored, verse 3, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's who he's providing this account to. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That's what we are endeavoring to have, is certainty in a culture, in a time period of history that is uncertain about so many things. And the question Luke is answering for us is, who is Jesus? And can you answer that? Like, who is he really? I think it would be naive of us to think that if we were sitting in the synagogue at Nazareth, once I have been to Nazareth, that brow of the hill is still there. A synagogue would have been no bigger than the room you sit in right now a modest stone structure. There were synagogues throughout that upper northern region of Israel in Capernaum and in Nazareth and in Magdala. Many of them are just ruins. You can see the foundation. Some have part of the way up. You could see where the seat of Moses was, where the Pharisees would sit and teach. It certainly was by no means a megachurch. But here you have one of your hometown boys walk in. He grew up in your midst. He's 30 years old, Luke says. And he goes to read the Old Testament. And do we know who he is? They say, isn't this Joseph's son? We might say the same thing. Isn't this Mary's boy? Isn't this that good little lad? who's being trained to be a carpenter. I mean, we've watched him. We've observed him. It's his custom to go to the synagogue every day. They knew him when he was younger. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 4, the first 13 verses, where it says the Spirit led Jesus where? No sooner is he baptized and he hears a voice from heaven, but he is led out into the wilderness where he now hears the voice of the devil. It was a divine arrangement. The Spirit leads him out into a desert place, out into the wilderness, and someone, a very powerful evil spirit being, tracks his footsteps. Jesus, being far too important for the devil to ignore, from the wilderness ambush, He treks to Galilee, where he begins teaching in their synagogues. Look at Luke 3.23. It says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And then Luke 4, verse 15, it says he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. They weren't worshiping him as God. What that means is they were praising him for his teaching. Here is a very promising young rabbi And guess what? He's from our area. 
You see, just before this, Jesus had been, whether literally or in a vision, on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, standing next to who? One of the most powerful created beings in the world. Now put out of your mind horns and tail and pitchfork. That is a silly little representation that the devil would love for you to believe. Jesus as a human is standing on the pinnacle of the temple next to an incredible being who I have no doubt in that moment was gorgeous, handsome, somebody you think you could ally yourself with, maybe even using that subtle humor to make a very tense situation seem a little better. Probably appeared as an angel of light, as a friend, as someone who has Jesus' best interests at heart, like a master predator. You know how Jesus defeats him on every single occasion? It is written. It is written, and he goes to that same section in Deuteronomy that records the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness where they were unfaithful. And here is Jesus quoting that passage in Deuteronomy, and he is faithful. I love the one where You know, we expect this incredible, sensational, satanic attack. And all it is, is, are you hungry? Make these stones into bread. And of course, you know how Satan came down, that line of attack. He said, if you're the son of God. And I love the first response. Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone. You're tempting me down the lines of my eternal sonship which the father just said at the baptism, you are my son. I'm going to defeat you as a man. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he consistently and systematically defeats Satan through scripture as a human being. As the last Adam, he is successful where the first Adam was not. This morning... We go from that sensational confrontation to a synagogue in Nazareth. Folks, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Right? You've heard that question. The disciples asked that question. Do you know that when you encounter God, when he walks into your midst, you don't just get new information about him. You actually experience him. When you come face to face with God, it's not just that you learned the structure of the Old Testament. It actually leaves a mark on you. There's something experiential about a meeting with God Almighty, and that was true at Nazareth. So this morning, we're going to consider, I mean, from this sensational wilderness encounter, we're going to look at Jesus' first sermon that we have in Luke. The response to Jesus' preaching and the unexpected further application and reaction. Those three things. Let's look at the sermon. Jesus is in a synagogue, a modest stone structure, and the primary thing that would happen in a synagogue is that the reading of the Hebrew scripture would take place and then probably translated into Aramaic. 
because that is what the people understood and that is what the people spoke. Then the reader would sit down and if I, if I study this out properly, everybody else would stand during the sermon. And so some of you during that song set this morning might have thought, we are standing a, a very long time. But that's a lot easier than standing during the sermon. Now granted, Jesus' sermon, at least as Luke records it, is one sentence, right? And then he gives the application. But one sentence sermon. Look at verse 16. He stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, whether he requested that scroll among several or whether that was just the reading of the day by God's providence, he takes this scroll and it says he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And so what happens is you have the silence in the synagogue and Jesus finding his way to Isaiah 61. I don't know that there were any chapter and verse markings in that scroll. Most likely not. But he found what we would know of as Isaiah 61. And he turned to what is a servant of the Lord passage. Now the servant of the Lord is a messianic figure, quite mysterious. And he was predicted as the anointed one who would come in and save. He would set everything right. He would serve justice. He would help the poor. He would help the needy. He would come in and identify the oppressed. And he would make everything wrong in the world right. Jesus chose this text on purpose. Matter of fact, now we call Isaiah the gospel of the Old Testament. And there he is making his way to Isaiah 61, where he reads about an anointed figure who will inaugurate God's kingdom. And see, the prophets, including Isaiah, longed for this individual. Not just a time, but a person. They longed for justice to be served, and they longed for rightness, and they longed for true holiness. You even have a man like Habakkuk, a prophet, who struggled with God's seeming indifference towards justice. Listen to what he says at the beginning of his prophecy. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you, he's talking to God, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong. Destruction and violence are before me. They're everywhere. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that's the culture you're living in? And do you ever feel like God is indifferent? It's okay to doubt that. Habakkuk doubted that. And one of the most genuine prayers is Habakkuk grappling with certain things that don't add up about Yahweh. Like this isn't what I expected from God. There was a longing, an expectation, an anticipation, and yet hope always seemed to be 
far away. Look at what he says. Look at Luke 4, verse 18. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And I want you to see these four things that that describe his ministry. To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and proclaim this preaching, recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. And if you were to go back to Isaiah 61, and we have chapter and verse, but in verse 2, you will notice that where he stops is actually a comma. And that, and that same continuation would have been in the Hebrew. But look at verse 420 of Luke 4. And he rolled up the scroll... And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, why were they all staring at him, like, with this rapt attention? Well, I think it was for two reasons. First, they awaited the explanation. That's what the reader would do. That's what the rabbi would do. But there was also an expectation and rumors that were starting to develop already about the baptism and about his ministry in Capernaum, which you can actually see across the lake. Instead of going through a long, detailed explanation, look at what he says. Look at verse 21. Today, not in Isaiah's day, today, on this calendar day in Nazareth, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's the sermon. And I can just hear some people here, right? Be like Jesus, preach short sermons, right? No, that is not the lesson here. Remember, he also preached the Sermon on the Mount. Very long sermon, right? Um, But what about the response? Okay, what's the response to the sermon? This is our second point out of three. Their initial response is positive. Look at verse 22. They all spoke well of him. And marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Because this is a budding rabbi. They're not outraged. No one says, how dare he make that connection to Isaiah 61? Or what does he mean by saying this? Or is he actually hinting that he might be the Messiah? Nobody says that. They're impressed. They're actually wowed, but they're not fully persuaded, and Jesus knows that. Here's what what happened. Jesus read Isaiah 61, and they heard that scripture like they did the entire Old Testament through a certain grid. They heard that as though we are God's people. We are the oppressed. We are the poor. We are the moral ones. We're the religious ones. We believe the Bible. We come together every Sabbath day. We are here every Saturday when the synagogue doors are open and we're here to learn the Bible. We try our best to obey God. We're not like Samaritans. We're not like the Gentiles or the dirty Syrians or the filthy Babylonians. We are God's people. We're the ones that receive this prophecy. 
They are the ones under the oppression of a foreign power, Rome. The Romans were polytheists, idolaters, heretics, sexually immoral, unclean, bad people. The Messiah is coming to deliver us. They are waiting for a Messiah that will lead good people, God's people, in triumph over the bad people, which is Rome. And if he doesn't do it worldwide, at least he will do it within the promised land. That's the grid. They're hearing this, and they love it. They love that sermon. Good sermon, Jesus. But Jesus perceived that they did not understand the implications of the gospel from Isaiah 61. And so what he does is he ventures out in holy provocation. He's going to provoke them. They didn't understand Isaiah 61. They didn't understand who he was. And do you know why? Because they liked his sermon. Because when the gospel really breaks through and shatters morally religious people's idea of the gospel, it often exposes offense and anger to the point of murderous hate. So look at the unexpected application and reaction. We're already at point three. Look at verse 23. I mean, they loved it. Everything is going so well. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Do you remember what they said to him when he was suffering in agony on the cross? Come down. He healed others. Come down and save yourself. Verse 24, and he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And now he goes to make the application of the sermon. And what you have here in Jesus' sermon is a sermon using the application of Elijah, one instance, and Elisha. And once you go down to verse 26, and it says, And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This is a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea in modern Lebanon. Modern Lebanon, where Hezbollah is even this day attacking Israel. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And Syria still exists as a border country to Israel. So what does it mean that Messiah will proclaim good news to the poor or proclaim liberty to the captives or the recovering of sight to the blind or liberty to those who are oppressed? What does it mean and what does that look like? See, Jesus refers to the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, both prophets. And Jesus is also a prophet. And it refers to Israel rejecting God's prophets like Nazareth in real time is about to do to the greatest prophet ever. Look at the two illustrations and you will begin to see how the gospel works. See, Luke could have recorded the life of Jesus and by chapter 4 just said, this is such an incredible gift and it's all by God's grace 
This is what it looks like, and all you have to do is receive it. And even though all that is true about the gospel, he first comes to the offense of it, the implications of what it really is. See, when you look at the two illustrations that he gives, a widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian, then you begin to understand who the poor are, who receives the kingdom, who experiences God's presence. So who is the widow of Zarephath? She's a Gentile. And she's a woman in a culture that overlooked women often. She's poor. She has no husband to provide for her. According to those who gathered in the synagogue at Nazareth that day, she was a Gentile idol worshiper, a foreigner and a heretic far outside of the realm of God's blessing. And so Jesus, if you would, he pokes the bear in Nazareth. Who's Naaman the Syrian? Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, but he was the enemy. He killed killed Jews. Think of how the Jews feel towards Palestinian Arabs in Gaza right now. That's how the people in Nazareth felt towards Naaman the Syrian. Naaman also kidnapped Israel's children. He took hostages. Actually, he took slaves. Naaman's own wife had a servant, a little Israelite girl who had been captured during a Syrian raid. Naaman takes people and places them into slavery. Takes Jews and places them into slavery. And Jesus isn't saying that that's okay. But what he is saying in the synagogue at Nazareth among devout, religious, moralistic Jews is, do you know what? There were many widows in famine in Israel And God didn't send Elijah to them. God sent Elijah to a Gentile. And there were many people in Israel in those other days that were sick and suffering. And God didn't send Elijah to them. He sent them to a powerful Gentile slave master. Let me ask you at this point, is that what you expected the gospel to look like. Because it sure doesn't seem fair, does it? Jesus is making the point of who he is sent to. Look at verse 26. I want you to look at this phrase. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only. Look at verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only. And I'll tell you what, the people in the synagogue in Nazareth felt that. See, that's where the application of Isaiah 61 through the preaching of Jesus came down. So where where does the church of the middle upper class of America fit into Jesus' application? Is the church more like Jesus in Luke or those who gathered at the synagogue in Nazareth? And it's a genuine question. A question I have to ask myself. They were moral people. They gathered every week. They read and studied the scripture. They rejoiced at understanding Isaiah 61. But there was no place for Jesus in either Bethlehem or Nazareth because he actually preached something that went cross, 
grain to their religious and their moralistic and their racial identity. Their reaction to the sermon's application when they hear the implications of the gospel, that who Jesus was really sent to, guess what? It wasn't just like, ah, that sermon's not going to go viral. They try to kill him. Look at verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were furious. They were murderously furious. And they rose up and drove him out. This is what a crowd does. You can, you can hardly redirect the crowd. They are pushing you. There is a wall around you. They are running you towards the edge of a cliff. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. And there is no sense that Jesus is afraid. By the way, just previously, if you go back to the wilderness, Jesus takes is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. And what does, Jesus, what, does, what does Satan say to Jesus? Cast yourself down. Prove. Prove you're, you're the son of God. Because Psalm 91, remember Satan quotes scripture. Satan quoted scripture, word perfect. Cast yourself down. Because Psalm 91 says this. Do you know what I believe on the brow of that hill? Jesus had complete confidence that that his father would protect him because of the promises of Psalm 91. But he didn't have to prove to Satan that he was the son and give in to the temptation. But here, look what it does. They go to throw him off the cliff and he simply walks through the crowd because he knew that was not yet his time. The Lord himself appears in person in a religious building to religious people, but he teaches something that runs cross-grain to their expectations, and their heart is exposed as murderous. That That is such a challenging lesson, because underneath the veneer of religion can be hostility to God's Son, equal to the hostility that the devil had against God's Son in the wilderness. See, the Nazarene's hate is not unlike the devil's hate. Later in his ministry, and don't turn there for sake of time, but I want you to hear another confrontation that Jesus had with Jewish people. In John chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 39. They're irritated, they're angry, they're frustrated, and they answer Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. See, this wasn't the first time they tried to kill Jesus. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. So I guess they did not believe in the virgin birth. And they're using that as an insult. We have one father, even God. You you hear this religious tone. Abraham, you have an illegitimate parenthood. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father. This is Jesus speaking. 
to religious Jews. Are you ready? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? You want to call into question that I was born out of sexual immorality? Which one, which one of you can accuse me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And guess how they respond? The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They're still making it about race. They're still making it about religion. When we feel superior to poor people or to immoral people or to sexually confused and depraved people and we feel better about ourselves religiously, we have missed the gospel. We have missed Jesus. Oh, we get religion. We get Isaiah 61. Good sermon, Jesus. But we miss the gospel. If we have angry outbursts at God because he owes us something for being religious or moral or right or better or cleaner, I want to encourage us to look back at Jesus as Luke presents him. Jesus would even tell the Jews this in John 5. 39. You search the scriptures, Jews, because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. It's possible. It's possible to know the scriptures better than anyone else and miss Jesus. Look at verse 30 of Luke 40, or Luke 4, verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. So what? what? What is the way to move forward from a sermon like this? First of all, this is good news. The gospel is for those who are spiritually poor. You can only come to Jesus poor. You can't come thinking you just need a little bit of reform. You can't come thinking you just need to add a few more laws or you just need to get that habit right You've got to come spiritually destitute and poor, spiritually bankrupt, like the widow of Zarephath and like Naaman. Matter of fact, Jesus will teach this. You want to know how important that lesson is? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted. And see, Jesus wasn't promoting physical poverty. How do we know that? That he he wasn't just saying, go sell all and be poor because the poor by default are accepted by God. Because one of the two illustrations is a wealthy, powerful man. Naaman was powerful. He was the commander of the Syrian armies. They call him a valiant warrior. Actually, when he travels from Syria over to Israel to find the king and say, I hear you have a prophet here that can heal me. He brings with him gold and silver and changes of clothing. And he rides with chariots and horses. He is a powerful man. 
Jesus chose those two examples to help, help us understand who he came for. See, he didn't just go to Kibera slum in Nairobi, Kenya, or the slum in Darvi in Mumbai, India. He came for Naaman too. What we see is it's important to let go of self-righteousness and the illusion that we can control God. You know what is interesting, and, and a fascinating contrast, and, and this will be the conclusion. Guess who helps Naaman? And by the way, God, God will graciously design in powerful, wealthy people's lives circumstances where you realize things are out of your control. And he will give Naaman leprosy. Well, it's a little slave girl. I want you to just pause there for a second. A Jewish slave girl is the gospel in Naaman's home. She says to Naaman's wife, if only my master, that's Naaman, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. There's the gospel. Both the slave girl and Naaman. You know the gospel is for those who are spiritually needy, but also those who are physically needy, because that is typically where we find our need outside of ourself. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. He talks about himself in the third person. He's, he's angry. Swish, 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 cure the leper. Well, God doesn't always do things according to your expectations. And then he starts calling out cleaner rivers. I want to dip in a cleaner river. See, the gospel doesn't make sense, does it? So he turned and went away in a rage, like the Nazarenes, like the other Jews who confronted Jesus, and often like the American church when things are out of our control. Well, he ends up going. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, you want to hear the gospel and the results of the gospel? Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. One last little detail. Jesus didn't finish reading Isaiah 61 verse 2. The portion that he left off, if he would have kept reading, listen to what it says. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He read that. That's where he ended. And the day of vengeance of our God. His first advent was not about vengeance. It was about grace. It was about mercy to poor people. To racial outsiders like Naaman. To the powerless. To those on the edges of society. To women and widows who are overlooked. Even for desperately sick foreign generals and I thought of this verse 
The very fact that Jesus left off that phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So you have a choice this morning. You can either try to push Jesus off a cliff, metaphorically, and kill him out of your life, or you can be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So do you have the answer that Luke is providing the answer for? Who is Jesus? He is our only hope and the Savior of the world. Well, how do you receive him? In complete spiritual poverty, you bow before him. Receive him as King and Savior and Lord. Let's pray.